pray? <laughs> Boy, that'll get it quiet, right? Maybe we, uh, that would be a good thing to do. Let's pray. Father, as we get ready to look at Your Word tonight, we praise You for who You are. And we are so thankful that You have given us truth and we surround You and gathering together and we know that You are here and to give us wisdom on learning further what You have for us. Thank You for this week that You've given us. Thank You that, um, Lord, we can praise You and honor You. We have that great opportunity. And uh, in the mid of midweek where we get uh, refreshed from Your Word and just uh, being able to fellowship with each other, what a uh, precious time it is. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we're in Second Peter chapter 3. We are going into the last chapter of the Second Peter. The final words of the great Apostle Paul, I think, and I say Paul, not, I know we're in Peter, but whenever Paul was uh, writing to Timothy, in Second Timothy, one of the last things that he said there was he was dealing with um, identifying with Christians who love his appearing. And in Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, In his last days I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. What a thing to say, right? In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Anybody that's a Christian loves His appearing that, uh, that He's coming back for us. True believers love the appearing of Christ. That's our hope. That's our desire. That's our ultimate goal is, is glory. And uh, we'll get to experience that soli deo gloria, glory of God alone. We also will be in glory with Him and glorified. The second coming of our Lord, I think that's one of the greatest, maybe the greatest motivator there is for us. Um, regardless of what times we have to deal with, things we go through, uh, the joy that we have is because we know that this is just a passing moment. Not even a moment, really. It's just just a short little time compared to eternity. The great motivator for not only our joy, but our service, our ministry. How about our holiness? Uh, I think we, we looked at that in First Peter. where It talked about the second coming of Christ and then uh, he dealt with the topic of holiness. And so as we become more and more like Christ here, we look to that day where we'll be just like Him. When He comes back to gather His own to Himself. We look to that. At the same time, while He's doing that, the ones who are wicked, He will, uh, he will send to judgment. So He comes to set up His kingdom, but He also will come um, and make a judgment upon the uh, ones who are not believers. Eternal righteousness is what we, we look to. And I think it's very crucial um, because our faith culminates in all that. But I do want to say Satan works very diligently to deny the second coming of Christ. Uh, to deny future judgment. So you have on the second coming and then we, we deal with, with judgment. They're both there. Um, 
you know, we've been dealing with false teachers. False teachers deny Christ's return. False teachers will deny judgment of God. They'll deny that there is a hell. Most cults don't have place for a hell. Have you ever noticed that? Isn't that interesting? And uh, usually, uh, many of them don't believe in the return of Christ, at least in the personal bodily return that we have. Uh, at least the people uh, that listen to this will not have any idea what it was. Because I, I don't. I don't even know what it was. It's one of It's one of those. Oh. Yeah. Bird of Paradise fly on your hair. Yeah, I'm going to have to start going to the bathroom before I go and check myself out. Okay, we're not surprised that false teachers would do that, are we? Um, we we're not surprised that Satan would try to get people to um, not believe in, in the second coming or um, a judgment. So the enemy is going to attack this doctrine, isn't he? He's going to use false teachers to attack that. And Peter uh, really wants to make a clear argument against the false teaching and, and what they say, that there's not going to be Christ coming back, there's not going to be any judgment, and he wants to make it clear that there certainly is. And he wants uh, the Christians to be able to stand that onslaught of false teaching that they were getting and were going to continue to get all the way up to our time today. The scoffers will deny this coming judgment. And, of course, we'll see why it's laid out right here. Um, first couple of verses builds on the argument of Scripture. Now, scoffers are going to deny Scripture. That's what they do best, don't they? They will deny uh, the Scripture, but we have the argument from Scripture. So the first two verses read, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So Peter starts off, and he knows that the scoffers have their arguments, and they can have those arguments, and if one is not solid in Scripture, one can be led to believe a lot of things they say. And so our arguments uh, that we'll look at in this section, not only is Scripture, but we can look at history, history through Scripture, and then, of course, the the coming judgment, dealing with the future. Um, The godly people, Christians, have to be stirred up. I I like what Peter starts off with. Um, This is now beloved. He loves his people. He's a pastor at heart, isn't he? Of course, in 1 Peter 5, when he talks about he... Uh, talk about the shepherds and such. and He is that way. He has uh, the pastor's heart. Calls him beloved. The second letter I'm writing to you. Could have been other letters that he wrote, but I, I think he's referring to the first Peter and here's second Peter. Uh, make it simple. Don't have to spend any time on that though. In which I am stirring up your sincere mind. Right here in the first verse of chapter 3, I'm stirring up. Sounds kind of familiar. I want to stir this up. What does that mean? Well, awaken, alert, to stir it up, awaken, alert, uh, to stimulate. Do you 
wholesome thinking. What's that? I didn't jot that down. I don't have the text with me here. I'm sorry, though. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have one with you? I don't have one. All right. Um, Sorry. I'm going to have to start bringing that along. Somebody might ask. Um, No, no, that's okay. You're testing me out. I'm showing that I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Uh, there has to be a reminder. There has to be a refreshing. Peter has said that before, hasn't he? That sound familiar? Does that quite a bit. Um, go back to chapter one in this same book, little letter here, verse twelve. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. Right? They already know them. And have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. I'm going to be dying. As also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. I'm going to crucify Him, actually. And I'll also be diligent that at any time after my departure you'll be able to call these things to mind. We hit on that quite a bit one time, dealing with um, being refreshed in thought. Calling people to mind. That's why one of the reasons why we meet when we do, as often as we do. Because we, what? Forget. You wouldn't think we would forget, but we need to be reminded. There's so many different things in the Bible and there's a lot of... Um, chapters in the Bible, right? Lots of verses. And of course, there's only so many doctrines, but there are a lot of those things because we might be dwelling on one thing or might not be dwelling on anything and we need something to stimulate us back, to refresh us. So um, Peter is writing to affirm them in the truth that they already know just in case they forgot, which they probably have in certain things. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. Oh, yeah. Now, Paul said this too. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? There he's dealing with apostasy. And and also the coming of the Lord Jesus. And he says, don't you, don't you remember I told you these things? Um, Jude. Just before Revelation, Jude, uh, verse 5, something similar. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, you already know this, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So it says, I remind you of these. Good to be reminded. The implication, I think, in our Second Peter passage is saying that not only do we need to be reminded that, but that we don't need necessarily new things. We need the old truth of the gospel, which is always there. There might be new, fresh insights. We're always looking for those. We like those. That's just growing in grace and knowledge. But as far as the doctrine, uh, the, the very teaching of the Word of God, it's it's the same thing that's always been around. Um, truth. 
Reminded of old truths, we tend to forget. Um, Romans 12:2 says, "Be transformed by the renewing of your mind." Got to stay in it. Stay in it. Keep uh, keep at it. Don't get weary. Stay in that word. All right. Very important. John Calvin, I think, had a really good comment on this uh, out of his commentary. I think it rings true to us that even the godly who have some degree of biblical learning, will become dim and mentally rusty, you like that, if they do not receive these constant reminders and warnings. We can become dim or rusty. Have you ever become rusty on certain things? Oh my, I haven't been in that book in a long time. It might be something way back in the Old Testament. It might be something in the New Testament. And it might have been, you go, oh my, it might be seven years ago since I read that. You know, um, But he says, uh, dim, mentally rusty, uh, if they do not receive these constant reminders and warnings. And so the church needs faithful teachers to impress the truth on the memory of their hearers just as Peter is doing here. So I think that um, calls to mind of what what we are to do. Yeah. Stay in the Word. Be taught the Word. Continue to uh, grow, as Peter will say, in this chapter right at the at the end. Sincere mind is the next phrase there. Stirring up your sincere mind. Sincere is a word here that is kind of opposite of what the characteristic would be of false teachers that we had looked at last week. And you remember it, I think it's verse 20, chapter 2. For if after they have escaped the defilements or the corruption, all that aura in the in the world, all the things that are uh, wicked and evil, those defilements, it's it's impure, right? It's it's corrupt. In this sense, the sincere mind is the opposite. It's it's uncontaminated, is the idea of that word, uncontaminated by by your enemies, pure, unmixed. So a sincere mind is a, is a pure mind. I'm stirring up your pure mind. I want to stir that up, that redeemed mind that you have. We want to get it going, all right? Get the cobwebs out of there. Shake, it, shake those things loose. But a, a pure faculty for spiritual discernment. Being able to discern what, what is true, what is right, what is good. A sincere mind. Pure-mindedness. And then, he tells you how. By way... Here's a reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. Now, he gets into really the Scriptures here. And the words by the holy prophets will take you back to the Old Testament. And then he talks about, that, and that was beforehand, and then the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Guess what that would be? The New Testament that was being written at that time and uh, being put together. But the Old Testament, he said you, you need to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the prophets. Uh, beloved, the Old Testament. 
know, the ones that uh, Jewish people were so familiar with. You need to go back. You need to be refreshed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is inspired by God. New Testament inspired by God. And the Old Testament has a lot to say about final judgment. And that's really the topic of where he's pushing to. Would you, uh, would you say that the Old Testament has a lot of judgment in it? Would you say that's why a lot of people don't like the Old Testament? Because it's a, a lot of the wrath of God. And that kind of differs from people's idea of who God is because He's a loving God in the New Testament, so therefore they don't like the Old Testament. But um, I found you can't have one without... Did you get it there, Bob? Yeah. What? Can't you read it? I can read it, but I, I mean, I can't pronounce it. But it's the Agairo. The yeah, to arouse fully, to awaken that stirring, stirring word that Barb was asking about. Diego probably is a better way to say it, but yeah, to arouse. So yeah. Uh, you might find right enough, yeah. Just, so that's the word stir up, right? To arouse. To wake out of sleep. I think I saw another yeah. definition there. Wake out of sleep. Yeah. Arouse in general, stir up. Put it down there. There we go. See, we don't need to bring <laughs> our text in here. We can just look it up, right? <laughs> just, just say, Bob, pop that up and within a minute probably be there. When you're sitting around Zach, my son, right? He usually ha- he used to have the laptop. Now, you know. <laughs> but, you know, if you have any question that you wanted to ask, well, I don't know how old that guy is. And boom, he's over going like this. And about five seconds he goes, then he'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, old Testament. You're going to read about coming judgment constantly. Go to, uh, And we're not going to go through all of them because we wouldn't not have enough time for the re- by the rest of the week we probably wouldn't but let's go to Psalm chapter 50 verse 1 so many we're going to start at verse 1 matter of fact this first verse here might sound familiar like a song the mighty one God the Lord has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before Him, and it is very tempestuous around Him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge His people. Gather my godly ones to Me, those who have made a covenant with Me by sacrifice, and the heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. Sound familiar? I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay our vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose and evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. 
Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces, and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. There are the two right there. His coming back and rewarding his own and to his enemies. Uh, quite the judgment. I'll tear you in pieces. Nobody can deliver. Very plain, plain isn't flowery it? language. Oh, yeah, real flowery, isn't it? <laughs> Pretty plain. About up front as you can get, isn't it? Not mincing words, but he's definitely uh, stating a lot of words. No kidding. And so goes God's Word, right? Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. Like I said, we're just looking at a few, okay? What an argument. It's a winning argument. The other guys don't have a chance. 13, verse 10. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. We can go on, but you get the picture there, right? Isaiah 13.10. Sorry about that. I like verse 13. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of His burning anger. I mean, it's a holy God. And He does have wrath. Not trying to amplify it any. That's just how it is. 24, verse 19 Isaiah 24. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack, for its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall, never to rise again. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of earth on earth, they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. And after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And His glory will be before His elders. Micah. A little further on in the Minor Prophets section. Micah in chapter... Uh, one, I believe it is. Verse 4. The mountains will melt under Him and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. Quite descriptive. Quite descriptive. Look in Malachi. Very last book in the Old Testament. Malachi. <laughs> Zach, who was responsible for naming Malachi? That was more like the first name. You like that Malachi? For the day, behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, 
and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Well, you can see why people don't like the Old Testament if they don't like a God who is righteous and just and holy. Yes? I hope this is edifying to someone. It is to me. Occasionally I listen to classical, but not not much. I know we have a couple of classical lovers here, and uh, but uh, uh, we the only classical music we actually own besides one called classical loon has loon singing on it. It's handled the sire, and uh, I like to listen to that at different times of the year. And uh, next to the Hallelujah chorus, my favorite one is number six. Or movement six, or that movement in, in there, I guess. But anyway, uh, it's who shall abide the day of his coming. He is like a refinery fire. And the melody of it is so magnificent and so it, it's frightening along with those words. And it's just, I, I just encourage anybody, if you get a chance to, to listen to Handel's Messiah, to pay attention to that. It, it, it goes right with the theme of what we've been reading. It's almost like reading scripture, isn't it? You can get one. It is. My one I have, it lists all the scripture that it's out of. So I've gone through my Bible and highlighted in green, green, blue, all the scripture from the Messiah. Everywhere. But the melody married with those words is just, wow, it just blows you away. Powerful, isn't it? Who may abide the day of coming? No one, unless you're in Christ. Tells how big God is. That exalts him. You know, that, that's part of his character, his nature. It's dealing with his justice, really. Uh, so, where do we go then to argue for the judgment of God at the end? Well, we have, first of all, the Scripture that comes out of the Old Testament. These are just a few. We know there are very many. And, of course, if you get Handel's Messiah, you could probably see all the passages dealing with that. just that song in itself. They're probably endless there. No? Probably quite a few. So, that's what... Um, one thought of uh, one thought is whenever he says the the words that were spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior Jesus his words and of course think of the gospel that the apostles wrote down and so it's in the New Testament too I like the God of the New Testament people will say well have they read the New Testament. And the New Testament agrees with the Old Testament. The Old Testament agrees with the New Testament. They're really one. It's the Word of God. It's Jesus Christ. The apostles, the ones by virtue of God's marvelous grace. You remember the disciples who stumbled all over the place that we've been studying in the book of Mark for many, many months? And, you know, we go, those guys, can't they get it right? And they wind up, many of them, writing... books of the Bible that we read. God's grace is amazing how with His Holy Spirit how they were changed and they gave us this marvelous truth that we have today. The commandments of Christ, the Lord and Savior, the apostles, and the New Testament is just replete with judgment passages, warnings about judgment and establishing His kingdom. They They go hand in hand. He comes back for us so that we can be with Him. But for the others, He has to judge. It's kind of 
should uh, make us go to our knees in thanksgiving, but it also should drive us to prayer for the ones who are lost, really. I mean, to know. What's that? He didn't read the passage about the foolish man of sin and built his house on the sin. In the very Sermon on the Mount, he claimed to live by it. And then he would sing, I did it my way. Yeah, that's sad. Do you know, how many books are in the New Testament? How many guys? Would say? 27. Out of those 27 books, 23 out of the 27 books mention judgment and the second coming. 23 out of 27. Not bad, right? Now, out of those four that are not in there, you go, why aren't they in there? Well, for one thing, three of the four are only one chapter long. Philemon, Second John, Third John. And the fourth doesn't necessarily speak specifically about the second coming, but it's kind of there, though, too, and it's in Galatians 1. And it says that, and so you could actually put it in there, but it's implied. It says that Christ gave Himself for our sins that He might deliver us out of the present evil age. So, implying it. Um, 260 chapters in the New Testament. 260, okay? You know how many references there are to the second coming? 260 chapters. There's 300 references to the second coming that are explicit. So that's averaging at least one or more a chapter. Almost every chapter. I mean, you can average that out. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? There's a lot to say about that. Uh, It tells us that He'll come in the clouds. He'll come in the glory of His Father. He'll come in flaming fire. He'll come with power and great glory. He'll come with a shout. He'll be accompanied by angels. He'll be with the saints. He will come unexpectedly. He will come as a thief. He will come as lightning. Um, he He comes to complete the salvation of the saints, to be glorified in the saints, to be admired in the saints to bring delight to hidden things of darkness, to judge, to reign, to destroy. Now, that's the first argument that we have here. The Old Testament, the New Testament. That's a pretty good place to start with, right? If somebody says they're a believer in Jesus Christ, and yet they say, oh, He's not coming back. He never has come back before. Why would you believe that now? He's he's just coming in a nebulous spiritual way. He's not really going to come back in a body you know, he he's come back in our hearts. You know. That's the kind of stuff that they they will say. But we know that we're moving towards that in verse three, verse four. Where's the promise of his coming? Right? Oh boy, we have plenty to look at there. The Old and New Testament. Pretty good argument. That's probably really all you need. But Peter says, I've got more. <laughs> First of all we'll see that when we go into verse 3 now. Know this, first of all. Okay, no, this is important. Know this. I want you to know this. That in the last days, and of course the last days started when? Time of Christ. During the, the times of the apostles there. That's, that's the last days. Christ resurrected. We've been in there. That's the last days. Mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lust and saying, where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, 
all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain it, it escapes their notice that by the Word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, that being flooded with water. Now we're going into an argument that we have, but we're going to look at their arguments as we're looking at our argument. Our first argument was Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. Now, their arguments, you know, they attack biblical truth. Calvin, I think, rightly pointed out that you cannot take away the promise of Christ's return without destroying the very core of the gospel. That's how important the second coming of Christ is. You think of the virgin birth, the authority of Scripture, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Many things that are you know, at the heart, you know, His atonement for us. Um, those are very important. That, that lies right at the heart of what we believe. So when you take away what we so look forward to, what do you have? You don't have the gospel any longer. It's all part of this gospel story. Power of Christ is brought to nothing. The whole of Christianity. It's not there. It's gone. So what does Satan do? He aims directly at the throat of the church and he goes on the attack of this whole thing about the coming of Christ. Why did Christ die and resurrect so that He could come again and redeem us to uh, to glory. Not just to have a, a life here that is uh, spiritual and good in Christ, but it goes much further. Um, look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The early church, they expected Christ to come back at any time. Whenever is fine. But I, I think probably all throughout the ages, we know it's very possible that Christ can come back. Nice to, nice to think about, isn't it? First Thessalonians 4, verse 15, I believe is what it is. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, there we go, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul might be possibly saying, hey, I think he could come back, at any t- he could come back in my lifetime. We say that we who are alive right now That's the people that he's talking about. Will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We, and he could be including the rest of the church on on through too, but it's very possible he's thinking that Christ could come back in his time. He didn't know. Nobody nobody knows. Um, But, uh, you know, that's that's quite the the thought, you know, of knowing that the early church looked for him possibly coming back. We know the, the apostles were wanting the kingdom to start. Um, even before Christ had ascended. You know, but it wasn't then. It's not you to know that time, he says. But uh, people have been waiting. And they wait. And they wait. Go through a hard life. And all of a sudden, somebody comes along with their great intellect. I put quotes there. And they start saying, what makes you really think? that he's going to come back. He hasn't come back. It's been 2,000 years since he was here. Everybody else has been looking for that. It's just going to go on and on and on. This earth is just going to continue forever. I remember being in uh, 
Texas. I'm trying to think of that little town that's in the hills. Kerrville. Kerrville, Texas. Anybody heard of Kerrville, Texas? And uh, I had just been reading the Bible. And I wasn't very deep in it at all. I didn't have enough to go on at all. And sure enough, I was reading it one day outside. I don't know if there was a pool there. I think there was a swimming pool. And I was just sitting there, you know. And this guy saw what I was reading. I had the Bible. He said, what you reading there? I said, the Bible. <laughs> and I, um, let's just say this was the very kind of beginning of my journey of discovering the Bible. And I didn't know enough. And he said, oh, you don't really believe that, do you? I go, why wouldn't I? It's supposed to be God's Word. And uh, he started just chewing it up and spitting it out. And I didn't have any defense for it. All I know is I said, well, I, I just believe it. And uh, like I say, I was really young in it. I didn't have any arguments, but um, he certainly did. It's like he had been through this kind of thing before, and he was really sharp. At least I knew what he was what he was trying to say. Uh, but I, I wonder if I would have hung around him very long. I think it was probably about an hour or so, and he kept going back and forth. I'd raise a question, and he'd raise a question. But I wonder if it had been maybe hours and hours and days and days, I wonder if maybe there had been a doubt maybe starting to create in At that time, it wasn't. But it's only by the grace of God that, that it wasn't at that time. Um, but it, it's, it's people like that can start making think, well, yeah, how do I know that this really is the Bible? You start getting those little things like that. Have you ever had those? How do I really know Jesus was really here? How do I know He really resurrected? Those things don't bother me at all anymore. I mean, I, every once in a while, people have had fleeting thoughts like that, and they immediately just put it put it away, um, because we know we have very truthful writers who wrote this book, willing to give their lives up, and did give their lives up. We know that the resurrection is what everything hinges on. We know that to be true. We know it to be the very heart of where that gospel is out is at. And if you if you see prophecy, how prophecy of the Old Testament came true in the Old Testament time period, all those things that have happened, no other religions have anything close to that. All of a sudden, those doubts just start getting washed away real quick. No other book like this can't even challenge it. And so people can come up with arguments, sarcasm. They can come up with mocking and belittling, make you feel, try to make you feel like little and you don't know anything. Or how can you believe that? That's just uh, something that's ancient and it was just written by different people over different periods of time and they just wrote whatever they felt like they wanted to write. But... The ridicule is what they use. They will also use this. And, and they won't say this, but why is it that they don't want the judgment to come? Why isn't they don't want Christ to come? Well, it says here in verse 3, Know this, first of all. Mockers will come. They're going to ridicule. Mocking. Following after their own 
lusts. In their own minds, this is why they don't want a judgment. They don't want a God over them because they have their own immorality. Because It's not because they can disprove Scripture or they have great, fantastic insight into theology. They really don't. They don't know this truth. It's because they love their sin. And it comes down to accountability and they don't want any accountability. So they can live the way that they want. They don't want judgment to come, so therefore they put it out of sight, out of mind, right? Out of mind, out of sight. (laughs) What do they shut their eyes to? Well, in the next section, we see that they shut their eyes to creation. Now, Peter has used Old Testament, New Testament. Then you could say, well, then he goes back to the Old Testament. But creation. Okay? Creation. And then they'll use the argument of uniformity, such as whatever is now is the way it's always been. And God hasn't ever judged And why would He judge now? He's not going to. It's always been this way. Nothing catastrophic has ever happened. But the thing is, creation was an amazing thing. And in a sense, there was a catastrophic happening there in that creation in that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. It was, you know, like, you remember, formless and void and He takes water to create this earth. And so creation, I think, is a great argument. Uh, And that's the very thing that the whole world is hitting against today, isn't it? And much in the church even. Um, Scoffers don't use the evidence before them. Look back in Genesis 1. Right from the very outset, God discloses, reveals... who He is and where this world came from. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And so Peter uses that idea of waters. Go down to verse 6. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And then in verse 9, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters He called seas and God saw that it was good. So water had a lot to do with creation. Um, The same time the earth was formed, there was some kind of watery mass. And we see here this... The water molecules are like put together. And so this mass of water then becomes a sphere. And of course, God is just speaking this. What an amazing thing that uh, happens as He uh, as He creates using this water. So, he uh, quite the arg- argument that uh, Peter presents in Scripture and, and creation, the very water of creation then is the very water that was used to destroy the earth. 
the very same water. So you have the flood. So even in that perfect environment that God made, God is good, His creation is all good, man fell into sin, and we know in Genesis 6-5 He saw the wickedness of man. It was great on the earth. And every intent of the thoughts of His heart was only evil continually. And then God was sorry that He made the whole thing and He said, I'm going to destroy it. So God intervened into history to judge the wicked right there. And he's talking about judgment. There's going to be a judgment coming. He's already judged before, hasn't he? He has done that. So we and, and so he, he does the waters, then takes the water, and then brings on the judgment. The false teachers refuse to face history, though. Matter of fact, there are revisionists in history today. I don't know if we would recognize any history if we walked into the public schools of our of our day and go into a history class. How much has been revised? How much has been depleted? And it might even start in the 1950s or 60s, as far as their history is concerned. You know, maybe maybe with Marilyn Monroe or something. You know, but it will not um, be faced. What's that? Yeah, it's not not history anyway, is it? Yeah, and if it is history, they just make up their own history. They can make it say whatever they want, but it's not true. So, you know, there was a devastating judgment on the whole world, and there will be in the future. Peter said, "If he's done it before, why wouldn't he? they can't deny the flood? They try to uh, try to make it up that they do, but then look at all the evidence of the flood." Of course, what are fossils about? They try to use fossils to prove that there is not or that there's evolution, and really all it does is prove that as a cataclysmic event that formed those, it was the flood that did it. Yeah, Dwayne. I'm sorry, I've spoken many times. Uh, sorry, uh, this is sorry, but uh, this is some National Geographic several years ago. They had an article that said something about uh, evidence of biblical type flood or something like that, and so I got the magazine. And I uh, read the article, and uh, it was uh, where the Mediterranean, the waters of the ocean came in and flooded the Mediterranean basin and all this stuff. And, uh, or, no, I, I can't remember exactly what flooded what, but people that were living on the Black Sea were flooded. They found a house, a dwelling that was up to 300 foot of mud. And so here, and they acknowledge that this is evidence of a biblical you know, uh, event. But in in it, as they describe how they're descending to go to look, to, you know, to tunnel down this thing, it says, I tunneled down into the abyss, into the black, into the bowels of hell itself. And, you know, they're mocking God and His judgment. They just exactly as you were saying, they do not want His judgment. They refuse to face His judgment because they don't want His judgment even in the face of that evidence, right here in National Geographic. And they tell it on themselves. Right. Professor That's exactly right. That's right. And so when you, you know I think I think it explains it all. I think Peter just just says it here. They, you know, you've got to watch out for these guys. You know, they may come on with all their intellect, but uh, it's really about their own selfish selves. 
and it's their own lust. And, uh, of course, they can make fun of Christianity and make fun of the Bible all that they want. You know, and, and these guys even say, forever since the fathers fell asleep, all since those Old Testament people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, since they died, going all the way back to then, see, it continues just as it always has. Just it was from the beginning of creation. They even say creation, and on that, then Peter comes back and says this. It escapes their notice. Hmm. And then he says, it was the very Word of God that created. It was the very Word of God that that destroyed, using the same elements there. And we know that to be true. The evidence is there. Historically, it's there. It's there archaeologically. The very ones that are finding these things are the people who don't believe in God. But in Romans 1, I think it gives us the answer. They suppress the truth. And of course, the, one of the greatest lies of our day is evolution. And another one is about what they've done with the unborn. And of course, you can go on and on with many things. But they're, they're scoffers. They're saying the same kind of things as this. If they really thought that there was some kind of judgment coming, I think most people know about some kind of judgment that's in the Bible. Even if people are not Christians, they know about something like that. What are they doing? I think they're scoffing at it. That, you know, I, 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 we'll close on this. That, that Romans 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, verse 17 is about um, dealing with the just shall live by faith. That great verse, whole Reformation, was kind of, kind of hinged on that as Luther finally found out what it meant. So, we, there's the believers in Christ, and then boom, you hit right the opposite. The, the believers are just. They're justified. They're, they're declared righteous. Now look at what the unrighteous have coming. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, as we were just talking about, right, Dwayne? For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, there we go with creation, Paul's using that too, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Enough said.